He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Yes. You said you're focused on the bread and butter issues. How much is a slab of, of bread and a slab of butter? A slab? Well, it depends how you define a, a slab. If you go to Pack and Save in Upper Hutt to buy a loaf of Mollenberg um, toast bread, you'd be paying around $4, maybe $4.50. Um, if you're looking for a block of butter, it'd be around $7. Can I give you others? Uh, uh, two litres of milk. You might be paying about $4.50 for two litres of milk, depending on whether you're buying a, a branded version or a no-frills version. I any others? Clearly expecting that question. Um, reduction. I do my own supermarket shopping, and so I can tell you these things. That's Prime Minister Chris Hipkins batting away a reporter's inquiry about the actual cost of bread and butter and milk and more. Hipkins was getting that gotcha question because wheat and dairy products have been, at least metaphorically, a kind of north star for his government's policy agenda. When he announced his cabinet, the press release said it would be focused on bread and butter issues. When he announced a cost of living package, it was bread and butter support. The relentless focus on supermarket staples hasn't pleased everyone, especially in the media. Here's what Newsroom's National Affairs editor Sam Sushdeva recently tweeted about the phrase. These constant references to bread and butter issues from the government are going to turn me into a celiac. Come up with a new line, please. I cannot hear this 100 more times between now and the election. It's a credit to Sushdeva's undying optimism that he only believes he'll hear those words a hundred more times before the election, saying bread and butter is Hipkins' bread and butter. Just in this segment alone, I've already used those words seven times. But bread and butter, that's eight times now, isn't the only catchphrase getting repeated in the media this week. On Monday, Hipkins ditched a second tranche of government initiatives, including a so-called cash-for-clunkers scheme and what he dubbed a policy reprioritisation. The media, however, has found a much more exciting name for it. Here's One News. To pay for this, the government's had a second policy bonfire with eight casualties. And here's News Hub. The bonfire of the policies has grown into a towering inferno. Say what you like about setting your own policies on fire and watching them burn in a towering inferno. It's apparently popular. Almost immediately after Hipkins was done incinerating the latest list of Labour's former ideas, One News broadcast a poll showing the party positioned to win a third term. Despite the poll taking place before the most recent bonfire, the Herald's editorial team confidently linked its results to the policy immolation in a piece headlined, Hipkins' bonfire of the priorities gives Labour a boost in the polls. Over on Today FM, afternoon host Lloyd Burr called the bonfire a smart, if cynical strategy. And it's pretty smart politics from Hipkins, but I guess one could argue that it is a bit of sellout politics, yeah? He's selling out on things that Labour believes in, just so they can retain power. The political commentator Bryce Edwards put a different spin on things, writing that the policy burn-off marked a return to working-class politics for Labour. Under Jacinda Ardern, there was a party and government focused on the voters and ideologies of Liberal Greylin and Wellington Central. Now, under Prime Minister Chris Hipkins, Labour has a laser-like focus directed at the working-class politics of places like West Auckland and the Hutt Valley. To illustrate that, Edwards pointed to results from the One News poll which showed 48% of respondents listed the cost of living as their number one issue with climate change coming in second at just 
these commentators' near-unanimous conclusion was that cutting climate initiatives is wildly popular with median voters. But perhaps Wellington Central and Grey Lynn are a bit more populous than we thought because other data from the same poll called that consensus into question. When One News asked people whether they wanted the government to act with more urgency on climate change, 54% said yes, while 27% said it should stick to its plans from before the latest policy bonfire, which of course included the now scrapped clean car upgrade and the introduction of safer speed limits on much of the state highway network. In other words, the government currently setting fire to several of its highest profile climate initiatives is rapidly gaining popularity with the voters who say they actually do want more climate action. That apparent contradiction could be down to the fact that voters just didn't believe the scrap policies were effective. Hipkins himself has said schemes like the clean car upgrade wouldn't have made much of a difference to emissions anyway. Transport Minister Michael Wood got this response when he made the same claim on RNZ's checkpoint earlier this week. And so some of the policies today that we said we're not proceeding with, the clean car upgrade and social leasing, for example, they were policies that did have good outcomes, but actually the, uh, the impact on emissions is actually likely to be relatively limited on the whole. So and why were you doing them in the first place if they had a limited because, effect on emissions? Because they had, because they had other benefits um, that could come from them. There's also the fact that transport, as economists often say, is in the emissions trading scheme, which should, in theory, reduce its carbon output over time, even without subsidies and interventions like the ones Labour just got rid of. Another reason, though, could be the gap between how voters, informed by the media, perceive climate action in the abstract and how they respond when the government actually suggests tangible solutions. Our media organisations like to talk about how seriously they're taking climate change, signing up to initiatives like Covering Climate Now. But when the rubber meets the road and authorities attempt to implement some of the emissions-reducing interventions recommended by the IPCC and others, the commentary often turns a lot more sour. Here are some examples. This is AM host Ryan Bridge on building more cycling infrastructure just last week by not fixing a pothole and building a cycleway, you're not stopping China from polluting the planet. So, so this is the argument that they're, that they're going to have, they're going to run into, I think, at the election, is people will go, well, yes, I want to do something and, and you know, we need to do something, but now here, my road, this street... Here's RNZ's morning report on a plan to intensify housing inside existing city limits in 2021. Well, householders face losing... More than a billion dollars worth of sunlight and views under radical housing intensification law changes. And here's Mike Hosking of News Talk ZB on efforts to reduce farming emissions, also in 2021. Land use, production volumes, climate change, soil issues, all the stuff that's being heaped on the farmer and farmers at the moment is making life harder and harder. In other words, the government is killing the golden goose. Over at his Substack page, The Car Car This Week, commentator Bernard Hickey pointed to a gap between our climate ambitions and what's politically palatable, arguing the government is keeping debt low to appeal to suburbanite property owners, even if it means doing less to curb emissions. And what we have was a promise from a government to save for a rainy day. The rainy day arrived, and then it said actually, we're not going to spend the money. We're going to save even more for some other rainy day in future. And we're going to do that by not spending money on the thing that might reduce the number 
and the violence of the rainy day in future by reducing emissions. It's not just the government prioritising the concerns of a median voter who lives in a detached single-storey house in the suburbs, though. Despite regular proclamations on the urgency of addressing climate change, it's often the media as well. Maybe there are some good intentions at the root of the preference for so-called bread-and-butter policies. They can be nourishing, especially in a cost-of-living crisis. But it may be hard to fully enjoy the meal if the world is slowly turning into something resembling a bonfire and not the sort that's made of policy.